You're listening to Spirits, Oddities, and Mysteries, because no good podcast starts with a salad. Hello, lover. Hello, darling. to another podcast for this episode i will be drinking jack daniels tennessee honey whiskey once again tennessee honey has the distinctive character of jack daniels tennessee whiskey and liquor with subtle notes of honey for a smooth rewarding taste i actually just uh, had my darling open me a bottle of red diamond melbeck wine i feel as though you drank this once before on the show no nope Mm-mm. all right I kind of wanted to watch Hannibal, and this kind of reminded me of the Red Dragon. Ooh. So I grabbed it. It's an awesome, like, Celtic nut. Red Diamond Wines are an outlet for winemaking exploration. Our team of winemakers aim to take any grape varietal and showcase its rich, fruit-forward qualities. A style that has always made Red Diamond Wines approachable and exciting. This bold Malbec is full of red fruit and plum aromas with hints of vanilla. This story is going to be a little bizarre, but I promise you, stick with it. It'll all make sense in the end. Is it paranormal? It is not paranormal. So this story I'm about to tell you sticks with the theme of the last couple episodes from my story side. So not murder. Not murder. Okay. And it might not make sense at first, but stick with it. When it gets to the end, it's all going to kind of start to make sense to you. About 15 years ago, I was cleaning out my cupboards. I know where this is going. Pretty much everybody that knows me has heard this story at least once because it did lead to a bit of an epiphany, if you will. And it really has stuck with me in a lot of my theories about the world and all these different types of things but anywho I was cleaning out my cupboards and had a stack of different things that I was throwing away old jars that had expired dates on them and food that we're never going to eat I gave away to the pantry that was not expired and it all boils down to this package of old corn meal I was not a big cook back then I don't even know how I ended up with corn meal I'm guessing That it probably came from my mom's cupboard. She saw that it was going to be near the expiration date or just past it. Gave it to me. I never used cornmeal for anything. So it just sat in my cupboard. I, to this day, still don't know what you would actually use cornmeal for. But I'm sure you use it for all kinds of stuff. It's in a lot of the stuff that you (laughs) eat, honey. So anywho, I throw away most of the food. Created some boxes of this other food. And then as I approached the garbage can with this bag of cornmeal, I decided, and I'm still not sure why, to open the cornmeal before I threw it away. Probably because you were like, 
what even is this? Why I do I own intrigued. it? Yeah. What is it? <laughs> what does it look like? I, I'm intrigued. It's like almost a paper bag if you don't know what cornmeal looks like, <laughs> if you're not a big cook either. I like to cook on the grill, things like that, but uh, making food from scratch, not, not a big thing. I tear open the top of this bag and I immediately see these little black beetles bury themselves into this cornmeal. And uh, this is actually quite common for different types of uh, natural foods that you get. Cornmeal, but- flour, that's actually the sifter. The all recipes say when you like bake cookies or do anything with flour to sift it because it's very, (laughs) very common that there's tiny little bugs that live in there. So here's the crazy part, though. As I go to throw this bag away, it dawns on me that this is an unopened bag of cornmeal that has been in the back of a pantry for years. And if I did get it from my mom... She probably had it for years or however long cornmeal lasts before it expires. I mean, this was an old bag of cornmeal, which means these bugs that lived inside this bag of cornmeal had never in generations of their existence seen the outside world. Now, again, you know, I don't know if these bugs are conscious beings, if they have conversations amongst each other, if they carry down religions or however that works. But I will say, if they have any sort of conscious minds, the conversations that the first generations that started in this bag, presuming there was like one old beetle who made it into the bag and was alive to have seen the world outside this bag would like carry on this story of you have no idea what is outside this bag of cornmeal and one day young grandchildren you will see the world that is outside our existence but anywho that aside generations upon generations of beetles have lived their entire lives had their little baby maggot type things or whatever they are died and this cycle had continued and here i am now with an open bag of cornmeal dumping it into this garbage can these beetles for the first time ever are seeing that there's a world that exists outside of what they perceived as the entire universe from their perspective they have heard voices coming from outside this bag of cornmeal probably similar to charlie brown voices like the adults they don't speak our language so yeah they're just hearing noises i'm sure when the cupboard would open and shut it would be like their version of daytime and nighttime because even though it is a paper bag earthquake or an earthquake all these different things that happen inside their world and maybe when you like move things around to like grab something from the back of the pantry and bump into it they're like earthquake universe quake whatever but i mean i was baffled by this as i dumped this cornmeal into the garbage can and you know even though they were going into a garbage can i don't know if they fly or not but they were very able to crawl out of said garbage can or fly out if they flew they now exist in a world unlike anything they had ever seen or imagined And what this reminded me of, because, you know, my brain is quite bizarre. Most people probably would have just thrown away the cornmeal. Another window into being married. The (laughs) allegory of the cave. 
I'm sure most of you have heard Plato's allegory of the cave, but I'm going to give you the, the short version of it, if you will. There are these prisoners that have been chained up their entire lives in a cave and chained in such a way that they were only able to face the back wall of this cave. There were flames from a fire that would cast shadows of the people as they walked by. There was even like a puppet show that would go on from time to time, and they would see these shadows dance on the wall and these different beings that existed. They heard their voices, but they had never seen anything other than this shadow world. From their perspective, their entire existence was a world of two-dimensional beings. Is this a theory or based on... This is an allegory. It's like a story they tell to make a point. So the the point that he was making, from their perspective, these shadows were in fact their reality. Now, imagine one of these prisoners breaks free and escapes only to find a world outside the cave unlike anything he had ever witnessed in his entire life. A world beyond his wildest imagination. His eyes were opened, and he wanted nothing more than to reveal this awesome existence beyond the cave to his fellow prisoners. So once the fires were put out, he sneaks back into the cave in total darkness to tell the other prisoners of this magical world that exists. But this world is so far beyond their ability to comprehend their reaction isn't what he expects. He's trying to tell them about this three-dimensional world, these beings that exist unlike anything they'd ever seen before. And they simply laugh at his stories and call him crazy and insane. They actually choose to remain prisoners rather than be set free by a madman. Now, the the first part of this actually reminds me of that movie, The Room, where the the kid, the little boy, is trapped in there, and he's born in the room, and once he's rescued from his captor, his mother is trying to be like, no, this is the world, and this is the, uh, you know, this is, there's so much more, and he's like, where's Door? Yep. <laughs> that like, is actually based on these philosophical, like, thought experiments and there's a bunch of them that exist like this i'm sure you've heard the one um it starts out she's like a psychologist or some sort of doctor and she had been her entire life chained to a desk and essentially the only way that it really makes sense she had these goggles on that showed her every imaginable detail about color taught her how color works, this whole thing, but everything was in black and white. She had never in her entire life actually seen color before. And now the, this is another allegory or you could call it an allegory. It's another philosophical thought experiment. Basically what and we'll post all these on the Facebook, but basically what it comes down to is she knows everything there is to know about color. She has studied color from a scientific perspective her entire life. She knows why color exists, how color exists. She's told of all the colors of the rainbow. But then the goggles are lifted. She goes out into the real world and she sees color for the first time. Is there anything that she can learn from perceiving color that she didn't already know 
by studying and understanding the concept of color. So, I mean, these uh, philosophical thought experiences have been going on for ages. Back to the allegory of the cave. The point to this story is if there are things that exist outside our limited scope of imagination and we try to reveal these things, like if somebody went to the future and saw what's going to become and they came back and like tried to tell everybody, if the future was so fantastical, so beyond our ability to comprehend, even if he had evidence that he was able to time travel, like we still wouldn't be able to perceive what he's trying to describe to us. And therefore we would just consider him to be crazy. But the question becomes, are we any different than the beetles in the cornstarch or the prisoners in the cave? Our science is extremely limited. Allow me to explain what I mean by limited. Imagine if I brought you to a haystack. I told you that I believed there was a needle in said haystack. I even showed you evidence of a wound that was caused by said needle. And there are several other witnesses that claim to have also been poked by this needle. A few of them claim to have even reached down and grabbed said needle, only to end up dropping it before getting it out of the haystack. So we go to this scientist and we tell the scientist, there's a needle in this haystack and we want you to find it. So the scientist racks his brain around this theory and he tries to determine the absolute best way to prove this theory to be true, to find the needle in the haystack, so to speak. So he brings in a high-powered magnet, and he repeatedly sifts through the hay, only to come up empty-handed. He even runs multiple experiments with needles in equally-sized haystacks in controlled labs, easily able to find the needle each time. As such, he concludes that there is no needle in this haystack. He even offers a counter-theory that the hay itself can act as a needle, showing evidence that it can break apart at a sharp angle, able to cause the same wounds the witnesses had experienced. He even proved that if you take blind subjects and you tell them to reach into a stack of hay with no needle in it, they will often state that they felt the needle in the hay, despite the hay having no said needles in it. I mean, hay is sharp. Hay is sharp, right? So all but one of the witnesses who have actually experienced being poked by this needle, some of which who have actually felt the needle in the haystack, accept this evidence produced by the scientific community that there is, in fact, no needle in the haystack. They go on about their lives. And this one witness, for the sake of this story, it will be me, who refuses to accept these results. I come back to the hay. I pull out a match and I burn the hay. And from the ashes, I pull a single bone needle. So if you haven't figured out the point of this, in this particular instance, the science was limited by the imagination of the scientist involved. He assumed, based on previous research and observations of needles, that the needle would be made of metal and that it would be easy to get it out with a magnet. While you were talking, I actually was trying to think what kind of needle could be made that is not magnetic? Did you come up with bone? I did not come up with bone. But I was racking my brain that whole time going, <laughs> what kind of needle? What what metal isn't meta- uh, magnetic? What kind? Hmm. 
Hmm. So this is not an exact example. Obviously, scientists would probably try several different methods to determine whether or not there was a needle in the haystack. They probably wouldn't limit themselves to just a magnet. But it's the idea, it's the broader scope, that the tools we use to measure the observable universe around us are limited in several ways. And I'm actually going to give you a few examples of this. According to a 2018 Pew Research study... 56% of Americans believe in the Christian God, and by default, both angels and demons. But 90% of Americans believe in a higher power of some kind, something that exists outside of our limited understanding of the universe, outside of the rules of physics, if you will. A Huffington Post slash YouGov survey suggests that around 45% of Americans believe in ghosts and paranormal activity. And I actually think that went a step further and said that of those, like those are the people that have personally witnessed it, have had some sort of experience that led them to believing in ghosts and paranormal activity, and that there are even more that believe in it through other people's stories. And there's a CBS poll that stated around 57% of Americans believe in psychic activity wait are you saying that only 40 you said 45 percent are basing their belief in ghosts and paranormal off of experiences in america i believe that's i actually have the links to these surveys i was trying to read it and type these in here pretty quickly but what is mind-blowing is i don't think i know a single person who can look me dead in the eye and say I have never had a supernatural encounter. Well, I can tell you one right now. My brother will most likely tell you he's never had a supernatural encounter. Really? Oh, absolutely. He would, even if there was something unbelievable that happened to him that he could not explain himself, he would just assume that that thing that happened was outside of his ability to understand, not that it was outside of our ability to scientifically measure or experience. So... Would he accept the idea that this is a a rogue theory that comes to mind that most ghost encounters are actual our own psyche and energy creating something moving or we are we're actually projecting our own energies and we think it's ghosts, but it's actually ourselves. Well, so he would agree that humans have energy because that is something that is provable by science. Our ability to project these energies in such a way that they could cause something paranormal to happen. I think he would and I would have to get him on the show to get his true opinion on this. But based on how well I know him, he would conclude that it's more likely that we imagined it than we caused it to happen with our energy or mind. It just blows my mind that. Like 45% seems small to me considering. Well, around 10% of the world, or I'm sorry, 10% of America is true self-proclaimed agnostic atheist, where they at least state that they have never witnessed or seen anything of evidential nature that would cause them to believe in any sort of supernatural existence, be it a god, ghost, etc. So these people would be definitively stating there is no ghost unless you could otherwise prove there is a ghost. The difference to agnostic is that you simply admit that something could be out there. You just haven't personally witnessed any evidence to it. Whereas somebody who is atheist is is boldly stating like, no, there is no God or 
in most atheist case, anything supernatural outside of the physical world that we do understand. Now, they will go so far as to say, like, there are potentially phenomenon that are scientifically explainable that we have not yet found, and they could be out there, but that everything, to some extent, will be explained through science. That is limited to about uh, technically less than 10%, because that 10% does include agnostic people as well that aren't opposed to the existence of ghosts, but just don't personally believe in them. All right. So I'm not suggesting with these three examples, and these are just examples, because you also have like the sim theory, um, of which I have developed my own version of, where we essentially live inside a computer simulation. There are other scientific theories that have led to that belief structure that we exist in a simulation, but most evidence that is found is considered pseudoscience if it involves religion, psychic activity, ghosts, paranormal, etc. Even if they are at one time considered to be respected scientists, once they delve into this research, they're often just kind of not just that data ignored, but oftentimes the scientists themselves are then blackballed from doing further research in what they consider to be legitimate studies. But that is still not the point that I'm trying to make. I'm also suggesting that even if we were to do more research in these areas, which I truly hope that in our lifetime we start to do, we're still most likely using the wrong tools, which is my example with the magnet trying to find the bone needle. I mean, I feel like it just takes somebody thinking outside of the normal box that we have built this idea that, we have the tools already. We just have to use them to find these other things that we can't explain. To think outside of the box to find new ways to research it would bring us closer. But it's hard, like you said, because you're looked down upon if you're trying to go into a pseudoscience or a spooky... Well, what they consider to be pseudoscience. If it's out, like all science at one time would be considered to be pseudoscience if it was outside of what they accepted as reality at that time which is what's crazy about it i mean we really even if they just separated the communities and like hey there's these scientists over here that are searching for these like bizarre things you know i mentioned that one scientist before that was studying the afterlife and he was studying in a way that involved more like personal testimony and quote unquote proof of said testimony, like things that they should not have known that they did know details that could be later confirmed. But again, you're not going to get like mainstream science to accept this. Unfortunately, it's not technically repeatable. You can do it with other subjects, but you can't go back with traditional science and be like, when this happens, this is going to happen, and then do it over and over and over again. Right. Just like a uh, shout out here, actually, to Morbid Podcast. Because oh, we love those guys. We do. They're gals, we should say. They are amazing. <laughs> they are. I love them. And they did an episode, and they talked about decapitation and how your your head is still capable of thinking for moments after death, but oh, they can't yeah. prove it. Because they can't go around chopping people's heads off and like hooking them up to things and being like, let's see if they keep thinking. And so I actually have some information they would enjoy. I'm, I haven't made it to that episode yet. She's ahead of me. She listens to it while she's at work. I do. <laughs> but uh, all day. It's amazing because I can binge listen. So I'm I am a little ahead of you. I'm limited to like my drive to and from work. 
But anywho, they have done more recent study on the human body and that after we conclude somebody as being dead, that their brain continues to be active. So many people have actually, according to this research, heard the coroner, the coroner like, say, like, announcing them dead, <laughs> which is crazy. No. But uh. like everybody's heard the whole like your life flashes before your eyes right before the moment of death. And there's a bunch of really cool theories on that. I as was well. going to say that's a whole <laughs> rabbit hole we could go down in. It's it's really interesting that we do have the tools capable of proving that the brain waves are still active after somebody is pronounced dead. What we don't know how to study is what does that mean? Yes. Right. Yeah. So, and that's where it gets really interesting is life after death, right? I mean, your whole life, and actually this kind of segues well into the next thing I'm going to talk about, is essentially based on perspective. When you're one years old, one year is your entire life, right? Like, that is all you have ever perceived as existence, assuming, of course, you didn't get reincarnated. So, one year from your perspective, is essentially forever. Don't get me started on reincarnation. When you're four years old, one year is one-fourth of your life. So one year takes a really, really, really long time. If it's only a few months till Christmas, that just seems like forever because fractionally, it is a much larger portion of your life than one year is when you're 100 years old, right? That is only one one-hundredth of your life. We all say time starts to fly as you get older, that's the logical explanation as to why time is flying as you get older. However, reverse that. Let's say, and this goes really well with like all the philosophical stuff that I enjoy, you die and your brain is slowly ceasing to function. If you have five minutes left as the blood's leaving your body before you die, those are the last five minutes you'll ever live, at least in this world. So from that perspective, that five minutes starts to get fractionalized. Two and a half minutes is half of the entire existence you have left on this planet. One minute and 25 seconds is one fourth of your entire existence. But as that time reduces, two and a half minutes becomes the end of your life and one and a half minutes becomes half of your life. And as that reduces, one minute and 25 seconds becomes the rest of your life and therefore 47 seconds or whatever i'm not doing math here <laughs> is the is the rest of your the half of the rest of your life right so that continues to fractionalize down and down and down and down into an endless loop where in theory from your perspective the last seconds of your life could essentially last forever as you continue to relive every moment you've experienced from every different angle, from your eyes, or every angle your eyes could see, like you can relive your entire existence indefinitely because as that time reduces, it continues to half the amount of time you have left on this planet. And that segues fairly well into how I'm going to wrap up my section here. I recently learned some interesting information about the mayfly. So the mayfly as my mom calls them, the mama bugs. Mama bugs. She is uh, referred to as mama by her family. And they're the only bugs she will touch because they just kind of chill there. She thinks they're cute. So she'll let like a mama bug, as she calls them, like sit on her arm. And uh, apparently there are other people that also call them these, but pretty rare. Mostly known as mayflies. <laughs> they make fantastic brooches because you put them on and they just chill. 
Right. So here's the crazy thing about that. What I just recently discovered is the mayflies common to the North America region. I was going to tell you guys the technical terms and all that, but... Java just went into the bathroom. That was super creepy. And I almost peed my pants. <laughs> Especially talking about all that paranormal stuff I know. before. So, <laughs> our, our mayflies live their entire lives, which depending on the fly, it can go from like, I've seen two weeks to up to two years of their life is, is pre-flight insect. Once they get their wings, they have 24 hours to live. There is another branch that blew my mind and that is they live their entire life to eventually get wings and when they finally become a flying insect they only live 15 minutes which is just almost incomprehensible to me like you get these wings you only have 15 minutes to enjoy them that is your entire life has built up to this moment it's a culmination of your existence (laughs) right so here's the crazy part hanging out in the hot tub with my son he points out like hey look there's one mayfly two mayflies three mayflies four mayflies six he finds six mayflies right of those six mayflies four of them were still chilling on our sliding glass door until this podcast started recording which is about 24 hours from last night when we were in the, I, no it's actually past 24 hours so if i open the windows now they're most likely dead they just wanted to hang out with us they spent their entire flying life stuck to a window this is their most exciting stage of their life and they wasted it glued to a sliding glass door distracted by the light so at first thought, I was like, well, they're just simple creatures and they're just wasting their life. They don't really understand it. And then my mind went to the people who are glued to their phones, mindlessly scrolling through their news feeds all day, every day, obsessed over what other people are having for dinner, eating other people's vacations and adventures. They are fake the, lives the may the mayfly living on the glass right like they're not even living and enjoying their day-to-day life they spend half their time working half their time sleeping and during the time that they're well i guess that's their whole life but you get what i'm saying <laughs> a large portion of their time working a large portion sleeping shitting all these other things and then when they have that time to like just explore the universe they waste it mindlessly doing nothing i'm not suggesting that our phones are the problem They're filled with essentially unlimited information to explore. It's how we use them and how often we let them distract us from great conversations, the world around us, and just living our lives that is the real issue. I do love, you know, uh, when we go to our good friend Tim and Dana's house, one of my favorite things about it is I feel very disconnected because when we get there... I'm so excited to see them. I put my phone down and we give hugs and we just start talking and we cook together and we play games together and we just sit and talk and the conversations go left and right and all she, over the she place. She actually recently mentioned when she heard our first podcast, she's like, I felt like we were all just sitting at the table having one of our conversations. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Could have been, could not have been a better compliment for what we were. That doing really for. was, yeah. 
I hope that all of you guys feel like you're just sitting with us having a glass of wine or Except a good spirit. Except we can't hear you. So email us. Tweet Twitter us. us. <laughs> Twitter us. Twitter us. <laughs> Tweet at us. Come on. Send Join us Join our comment. Facebook. Join the group. Uh, the group. That's what it's all about. Have these conversations with us. We are very it. limited in our fan base right now. So we will dedicate a lot of time to each and every Speaking one of you. Speaking of being on our phones. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's the thing. It's what you're using the phone for. Right. But yes, I do. I do love it because... By the time, you know, we, we're having some cocktails, so we always stay the night because we don't want to drink and drive. And by the time the next day comes and we're heading home, I, I haven't been on my phone unless one of the kids have called me. You know, that's the only thing that really pulls me away and pulls me back to my phone is just my children need me for something. And I think that's an acceptable reason to be on my phone. But besides that, like... I'm in the moment. I'm there. I'm present. I'm not scrolling on my feed and not half-ass listening to what my friend is telling me. I'm there. I'm present. And I love it every moment. It's it's always such a good experience and environment. We love you guys. And, and the point <laughs> I'm trying to make is don't limit that. I mean, that everything she just said is true. But when you take the train or public transportation or you're out and about, you're surrounded by people that often is the case have extraordinary stories inside them one of the things i love most about the type of work that i've done over the past 22 years i talk to people and the thing about sales is like you're not selling a product you're selling yourself you want to be the type of person that you would want to talk to if the roles were reversed right and when you strike up a conversation with somebody asking them questions about themselves is the greatest way to get somebody to really jump into a conversation. Everybody's favorite topic is themselves. Is themselves. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. I went to get my pictures done, my senior pictures in high school. The company that we all went to at the school I went to was Feltes? Felt Phelps? Something Feltz. like that. Phelps? Phelps. They Feltz. they were all the way out by us too. Phelps. These guys like did all of the senior pictures for several high schools around there. And Mr. Felt is like the owner of the company would often be the guy doing all the pictures. I got my pictures taken by him and I left walking away. I was just like, I really like that guy. He was such a nice guy. And I'm telling my brother this story. Senior year of high school. I'm like, man, this guy was so cool. He was just such a nice guy. And he looks at me having observed. I, I don't think he was there for my senior pictures, but he had also had the pictures done. And he knew what was going on. He looks at me and he goes, really? What do you know about him? You know, aside from the fact he takes pictures. And I was like, no, I think he, my brother was there. My brother was at my senior pictures. He was there. He was observing. He saw this whole thing play out. And when we left, I had told him that story. And he goes, oh, what do you know about him? Was, you know, aside from the fact he takes pictures. And uh, I was like, ah, I, I, he's a cool guy. He's like, why? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. He goes, you know what he knows about you? He knows you rollerblade. He knows you do karate. He knows you like to, you know, take jumps on your dirt bike and like all this stuff. And as a result, you like him. And man, that just stuck with me forever. He sat there for a solid 45 minutes to an hour taking my pictures and asking me questions about myself. And I just fed him information and at the end I was like oh I love this guy but anywho the whole point to what I was saying there is is just that like you ask people these questions you get to know them and in return you know they ask you questions and they get to know you in most real you know conversations 
you ha- like I genuinely care. I'm not just faking it because I want to make a sale and that comes through. It's why I've been traditionally very good at what I do. I genuinely care about what these people have to say. I am fascinated by the stories that I hear from these people. I take advantage of every opportunity that I have to pick the mind of an elderly person. They have observed things that like just are extraordinary in their lives. I do. I do love a conversation with anybody who is just experienced life and they can tell you about it because most of the time they won't unless you ask them because they have lived enough life where they want to listen to you and they don't like they just there's not a a, like a rambling nonsensical whatever like a a 20 year old at a bar is just gonna be like blah 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 no what they have to say means something what they have to say has been thought on and picked through and these are the highlights and these are the important facts and they're astonishing it's a lifetime of of just stories and collections of knowledge that that every single person i feel should have a book because every single person has we have a facebook does that count oh you know (laughs) it'll log your dinner for 40 years oh not my facebook (laughs) i might have put a few dinners on there but i truly like when i die i want to have my facebook history printed out and a copy given to all of my closest friends and family because uh, like i mean it takes you all over the place it does it's it's, it's a window should I, a window into my mind it the only thing that i thing, like but. i feel left out of this because i really i don't post on facebook and i don't i don't take enough pictures because like i said before i just when i'm in the moment i think about the moment i don't think about taking the picture i don't think about posting every so often i tell myself oh you need to do this and then i'll be good about it for like a couple times we go out but i'm so bad at that yeah but the window to your soul your mind so to speak is different than mine you express yourself through singing you express yourself through art i express myself through like stories and and literature i like to write so, it, I mean, but the window to your soul is like the stuff that you've drawn. Looks at the- my art. They're going to be like weird troll thing, <laughs> uh, Zen rock painting, uh, pour over painting, this weird sculptural thing. Uh, yeah, where was her mind? <laughs> a true, like what you're actually drawing or what you're singing isn't necessarily the window to your to your mind or your heart or your soul. It's the passion that you put into it right. when you no, do your I get creativity. That. I just, it goes I into am jealous of, cakes you know, your, your, uh, oh yeah, that'd be another like total rogue thing in the, in the middle of my story. It would just yeah, be like, there's other people cakes. what they request. So they have your, they request <laughs> to made make this, but like a penis cake, some booby cakes, a frozen cake, you know, like I'm all over the map. <laughs> Bachelorette parties. <laughs> yes. Yes. And brides, I aim to please man. They are the hardest client because they are the nerve, the most nervous. Because nobody ordering a birthday cake for their kid is as nervous as a bride coming in for her wedding cake. And you don't want to mess up that one. You know, like you get a <sighs> bunch of birthdays, God willing. 
But you have that one wedding. Yes. You know. I actually well. I did witness a a wedding cake topple over. I did not make this cake. I helped deliver it with the person who made the cake. It was an outdoor wedding with I wanna say a six or seven tier cake and it was already wobbly on the way there. And when she set it up, by the time she was walking away from setup, it just collapsed. That would be so horrible. I I literally was just I don't want to sound horrible, but I was like, I'm so glad I didn't make that cake. <laughs> Our friend does wedding photography, and we were talking to her about that. We're just like, that has got to be the most stressful thing ever because something outside of your control happens. Your camera breaks down, which I hope you have more than one, but it like those pictures just get deleted. The memory card fails you. I mean, like that is, you just can't ever fix that for them. Like doing a cake, I mean, God willing, it doesn't fall over. You're good. You drop it off and you get the hell out of there and you're done. Taking pictures is an all day, like eight hour, 12 hour experience between the getting ready pictures, the pictures during the wedding. Well, that too. But I'm saying like those memories, you only have one shot at it. That memory card fails, which I'm sure you go through more than one, but... I mean, that's it. They're they're all gone. Too too much stress for me. You're going to fake that wedding again? (laughs) Fake the uncle telling the drunken toast at the, you know, whatever? Like, that's it. Well, I thought that I would kind of talk about another paranormal experience that we had together. Back when we lived in our first actual house together, post-roommate, (laughs) post-garage, Uh, When we got our very first house, it was a very old house. It was over 100 years old. And it was made into a duplex. We lived on one side and we had neighbors on the other side. So old, in fact, that to do our laundry, I would go out of our kitchen door outside into the world and then (laughs) open two very heavy metal storm doors, go downstairs to a, a basement, like... You know, like your old school traditional floor, like basement. basement. I don't think it was dirt floor. Half of it. it was, yeah. The back half had dirt. The front half had a little cement. So that was that was good, but it still was not. It wasn't a basement. It was a cellar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when we lived there, we like I said, we had our neighbors. They were super nice people. They ended up moving away, and the house or the other half of our house was empty for a while did you mention it was a duplex yeah you? okay um you see how well his listening skills are you said that i think one of my contacts were uh, oh okay <laughs> okay i'll let that slide uh but so the other side they were showing it to rent it out finally we got new neighbors they were noisy ass neighbors we would be sitting there watching TV, and we'd hear them running up and down the staircase, up against And almost like if you were running up the wall, like hitting the wall on your way up, like not even like, like just not hard, but just like like a kid just being a dick, like you know. And I mean, they flushed their toilet more than anybody I knew, and I figured it was just a large family. However, I didn't really see them. But at the same time, we parked on one side of the house, and then the other side of the house had parking for the other side. 
So it wasn't unusual for me not to see people coming in and out because we, we had a shared garage, but we just didn't use it. There was a church parking lot that, that was closer in. to our back door. So we pretty much just went in and out the back door. And then their back door, the shared driveway. their back door went into the driveway. So they would immediately walk straight into their driveway. We would just come out and use the parking lot. And holy cow, they were noisy. So we went down to pay rent. And we were like, oh, yeah, so you filled our next door neighbors, blah, 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 the other half. And we knew they are so noisy. We were joking around <laughs> we with were them. like, holy cow, blah, blah, blah. We even asked, like, how many people moved in? Like, was it like a family of five? We haven't seen them yet. And the girl behind the desk goes, nobody's living on the other side. So she's actually intrigued. <laughs> We're now all thinking at this point that they're squatters. Oh, totally. So we all go straight back to our house. She has the keys to go in the neighbor's side of the duplex. And we go inside. And there's a couple interesting things about this. One, nobody's living there. There's no signs of anybody living there. And two, no flipping staircase where we hear people running up and down the staircase we assumed that it was a mirrored version of our side of the house where our staircase was we thought they had a staircase on that side they did they did not. not it was like their layout was completely different because it was again like one of these houses that was later converted into a duplex yeah so yeah they it had was like in the middle of their kitchen living room like going up towards the outside of the house the stairs yeah. were in the center while ours just went up the side of our wall what the hell it was very very bizarre and we had a few different experiences at that house but that one was just all of us kind of stood there and stared at each other she knew we were telling the truth like from our she was like what the heck like Clearly I mean, nobody's still, living here. And even though we don't rent from that company anymore, we're still friends with her. Yeah. <laughs> and so, really, like, <laughs> like, that house still continued to have the sounds of, as though somebody lived there. After we had this whole experience, like, we were now at this point just like, okay, it's clearly a ghost. Like, <laughs> nobody's living there. We would even, like, park in the driveway occasionally, look in the windows, see if anybody was sneaking in the house. There was nobody there. And if they were there... Like, it would be very silly some, of them to be that loud if they were squatters, yeah. you know? <laughs> they were some really sneaky people who were really loud, which typically doesn't go hand in hand. So, yeah, that that house was as haunted as hell, and actually, they did not fill the other side. The house existed inside the parking lot of a church, by the way, yes. and the church owned the house and rented out the house. And when we moved out, they demolished the house. That is no more. So, might have been because it was so old they couldn't bring things up to code to to continue renting. Or, you know what? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps up this episode. Once again, follow us on Twitter at Spirits with an S, Oddity. They're really short in our name, weird. Yeah. Follow us on Facebook, Spirits, Oddities, and Mysteries. Join our group, follow our page and follow us on instagram at spirits oddities and mysteries we would love to say that one there no no you're good all right all right and once again we want to give a shout out to the intro music for the podcast evening of chaos by kevin mclean https colon slash slash incompetech.com music from https colon slash slash film music.io 
License CC by HTTP colon slash slash creativecommons.org slash licenses slash by slash 4.0.